Welcome to Deep Impact Investing with Kimberly Griego-Kyle from Horizon Sustainable Financial Services. In this podcast, we talk about sustainable investing and how your portfolio reflects your values. Do your investments seek accountability from corporations that govern more and more of our society and even the lives we lead? Listen in as we explore the question, are you investing like you give a damn? Hello and welcome to Deep Impact Investing with Kimberly Griego-Kyle from Horizon Sustainable Financial Services. Today she has a special guest and that is Garvin J. Bush. Garvin is the Chief Investment Officer of Green Alpha Advisors, where he leads investment research, conducts macroeconomic, scientific, and technological analysis, and develops and communicates the next economy investment approach. Uh, Kim, how are you today? I'm great, Eric. How are you? Doing fantastic. Garvin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Kim, you you brought Garvin in today for the podcast for an interview. How did you guys start working together? Well, um, Horizons has been working with Green Alpha and Garvin and his team for, I think, a good seven years now. And he's uh, part of our third-party management group. Uh, We use them specifically for their approach to what we consider the next economy investment. We're going to talk about what that means today. Um, They have a very unique approach to what they're doing, and we really want to explore what the next economy looks like in sustainable investing, and it's, it's a little bit different. So that's what we're going to talk about. All right. I am here to learn. I'm excited. I'm going to let you take over and, and go for it. Great. Thanks. Garvin, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Kim. Thanks uh, also to you for having me on today. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and and kind of really explore what your approach is and what you guys consider the next economy to be and look at, at your approach to sustainability and, and what that really means. So I have a bunch of questions for you. Uh, excellent. Um, what I want to start with is a, a real brief, and I mean brief, and I don't want to get super wonky, but which we could easily do. Um, the <laughs> old way, uh, according to your, your white paper, the old way of investing is modern portfolio theory. So if you had to boil that down into two sentences for, for the layperson, how would you explain modern portfolio theory? You know, I think there's a big difference between what it actually is and how it is commonly practiced. And it's funny to talk about it as something called modern, as the old way of investing. And yet, you know, it, right. modern portfolio theory, uh, what, the book was written by Markowitz in the 50s. So it certainly is getting old now. It's on to 70 years old. And uh, it, it's, its primary uh, premise, the, what it revolves around, is that risk can be measured by variance. That was already a little bit wonky, but the more volatile... Uh, a strategy is or a stock is uh, compared to its underlying benchmark, the riskier it is, is is basically the uh, reducto ad absurdum of uh, modern portfolio theory. And so the issue with it that I have now is that a lot of managers, whether or not Markowitz intended this, have taken that to mean, well, you need to have low tracking error against, you know, any given benchmark or else you're very risky. And, and we object to that. And not only that, we think that using that as your definition of risk keeps you a little bit handcuffed. It keeps you 
trying too hard to mirror your benchmark and not trying hard enough to to pick individual stocks. Right. And the other piece about, uh, I think, when people think about modern or old portfolio theory, as you mentioned, is we must be extremely diversified and and that that will also mitigate your risk and you know uh, you know and and you have to track the benchmark and you know to make sure you're getting it right and and that's not really your theory about um, investing in terms of looking at the next economy there's a different approach for what you guys do right yeah that's right you know we think if you're if you're correlating with a benchmark and doing what modern portfolio theory uh, says you should do, uh, that means that what you're doing by almost by definition is correlating with the business as usual economy because all the big benchmarks, of course, reflect the legacy economy, the traditional business as usual economy. The S&P 500, for example, has 60 fossil fuels companies in it, right? It has other uh, carbon-exposed industries like internal combustion engine makers and and fossil-powered utilities. Uh, this is very much the legacy economy. So if, you're, if you want to right. manage something that's forward-looking and innovation-facing, it doesn't make sense to try to correlate with that. And so we think that if you if you want to to do an impact investing you need to let go of the idea that you need to you need to correlate and and st- strike your own path if you like <laughs> right and you have a number of white papers on your your website um, the green alpha um, advisors website and and we'll we'll give folks that that website later but you talk about three specific areas that you look at when you talk about the next economy for looking at risk, what you call the systemic risks. And one is climate change, which we've talked a number of times about on our different podcasts. And you talk about resource scarcity, which I want to talk about a lot today. And you talk about looking at inequality and um, how that results in the erosion of social cohesion. So I want to talk about those two areas a lot today because we have talked about climate change. Not that I want to ignore it because it is key to what you do. Um, But those are the two areas that I really want you to explain to our listeners how you bring that into investing specifically because we haven't talked about those a lot. So so let's talk about those and how they pose a risk to, to the new economy, what the threats are and and all of that. So, so let's focus on those two areas. Um, and, but of course, let's not, uh, not ignore um, climate change uh, and, and fossil fuels because those are certainly key points. But uh, how do those three strategies focus or look at the new economy? What, what are those? Why those three areas? Sure. You know, a minute ago we were, we were discussing how uh, our industry – the investment industry in general defines risk as uh, correlation with some underlying benchmark uh, or or lack of correlation. It More to the point is, is how it, it defines risk. And we thought, well, that is interesting in terms of measuring volatility, but true risk is found in the real economy, <laughs> on, the, on the ground in, in real time, in, in real terms, and what's going on with what the actual threats are to the global economy, what can disrupt us in the short and, and long runs over any time period, really. And the more we concentrated on those, the ones that kept rising to the top as 
you know, bar none, the most important risks to asset management, uh, really, they do begin with climate, the climate crisis, because uh, that almost every other risk that we talk about, including the other two that you that you mentioned, uh, are are really outcomes of the climate crisis in one way or another, or at least they're exacerbated by it. Right. So we worry not only about the climate crisis, but about resource degradation and scarcity and then also about widening inequality. Uh, if you look back through history, you can see that almost every time a civilization has, has failed, and in fact, as far as we know, every time, it's been some combination of widening inequality and degrading resources in the local environment, often caused by a, a local change in climate. It could have been a drought or it could have been a, a warming period or something. But these things in constellation very often uh, end up leading to some some level of collapse. So we then thought, okay, if we think about the global economy and the evolution that, that we see it taking, those are the high level, or as you quoted from the paper, system level risks that we see existing. So what are the end games for the global economy? Well, it can evolve to a place where it can uh, run and thrive indefinitely without overtopping Earth's tolerances. Uh, or we can face some form of collapse. And understanding that those are the end games gives us a very clear picture of what the genuine risks to us all are, and therefore how we should be managing our portfolios so as to, one, avoid those risks, and we can uh, right. talk a lot more about that if you like, but then, two, give our clients uh, and ourselves uh, the, the opportunity to benefit from the innovations that are helping us avoid those risks. It's It's a... It's there's both sides of that coin and, and both are equally important. Right. And um, I am curious, uh, what kinds of innovation strategies do you think will help in the next economy? The first thing to do if we weren't going to use modern portfolio theory and instead base our strategies on avoiding uh, what we would think of as more real risk than correlation risk. The first thing to do was to model what we think the next economy is unfolding to look like in order to avoid all those risks. And uh, in simplified uh, form, we describe it as resting on four pillars, the next economy, that is, as being based on four pillars. And those are, uh, first, ever-improving productivity efficiency. We think the production function of the global economy has to get much, much greater than it is today. Fortunately, it is uh, because of innovation. And we actually borrowed that not from economics or finance, but rather from biology E.O. Wilson, the, the Harvard biologist, uh, has been uh, very clear on this point. He thinks that the digitalization and improving efficiency of the economy to the, to the point where a lot of products and services come at zero marginal cost is the only way we'll get to environmental sustainability because we need to derive a lot more economic output out of far fewer inputs than we are now in order to provide a good standard of living for everyone and this is where equality comes in for the 100%, again, without overtopping Earth's tolerances. So pillar one, massive productivity gains via innovation. So portfolio-wise, that looks like exposure to IP, to, to the intellectual property around the best new means of production, uh, to bring it back to e economic speak. Um, questions to that point, or, or should I tell you about the other three pillars? <laughs> No, go ahead and tell me about the other three. Sure. Okay, so the first is, is ever-increasing productivity gains. Uh, the second is these great new means of, of 
production have to be powered entirely by renewable energies. Fossil fuels, of course, are the primary cause of the climate crisis. And uh, I did uh, listen to uh, one of your previous episodes wherein you and Johan discussed, well, what's more interesting to uh, avoid fossil fuels in your portfolio altogether or to hold some and, uh, and become an activist shareholder? Our approach to that is just avoid them altogether. Uh, we think that that helps our, our clients avoid the long-term risk associated with a kind of a dramatic downward repricing of carbon assets as, as the climate crisis comes into ever sharper focus around the world. So pillar two, renewable energies and true renewables, not, not nat gas as a bridge fuel, not necessarily biofuels, not uh, you know gasification. Uh, but rather wind, solar, maybe some advanced nuclear someday if we if we get to the point where it's less expensive uh, and, and genuine renewables. The third is waste to value, meaning we need to do a lot better in terms of recycling. We need to quit going back to primary geological sources so much for the material we need to, to run the economy. So ever-increasing waste to value. This goes hand-in-hand hand with productivity gains, of course. And then finally, the fourth pillar is the next economy has to be far more equal. And there, we think not so much about uh, the, the very uh, buzzworthy news item of universal basic income, but rather about universal basic equity. Uh, everybody needs to own a little bit of these fantastic new means of production so that the benefits of them are more equitably shared and that 100% can have a decent standard of living. It is in this way that we will avoid the erosion of social cohesion that comes with widening inequality and, and manage to thrive for a long, long time. So it is, it is companies and technologies and industries and ideas and intellectual property that are driving the advancement of those four pillars where we focus our investments. That is excellent. I'm going to come back to number four. Uh, I want to talk about the first three because uh, they, they seem to go together. We have, as you mentioned, talked about um, avoiding carbon energy and all of that quite a bit. Um, and what I love about what you say is that it's you're very positive about that area in terms of uh, even though you say we want to avoid it, but you're you're very positive about that area and 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 look at renewables and all of that. Um, I loved our conversation with Hunter Lovins, um, but part of that conversation was um, her philosophy is we're all going down <laughs> in the next ten years if we don't do something immediately, um, which you know which is certainly her point of view. Um, and I, I do encourage people to listen to that because it's it's very dramatic, and you know we have to do something immediately. Um, uh, but that's not what we get from reading your paper, um, or even what you're saying. Um, we do need to do something because you know it, it's 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 important. Um, and and looking at renewables and those types of things is is kind of where you're headed with this. Uh, the innovation piece uh, I really like uh, in terms of what you're doing, um, your strategy, looking at those those pieces in terms of the investment, the biotechnology, all of that is great. It's positive. Our clients love it. Um, they feel good about what they're doing. That all um, feels good. And that's part of the impact, the sustainability, moving in the right direction. And I think when we talk about your your portfolio strategy with clients, you know, when we say, hey, it's, it's the next economy, it's building the next economy, um, people want to know, well, what does that mean? And <laughs> so um, this conversation 
uh, will be helpful because I can ask, you know, people to listen to the podcast and, and this gives them a little bit better of an idea. They're hearing these words from your mouth, not just mine. And um, this will be very interesting for them to to kind of get this this piece. So when I when I ask you like what kinds of innovation, I think this is this is very helpful to them. What other key components besides just the four pillars do you really mean? You know, when you talk about recognizing these companies and and moving forward in in those first three areas, what's really important with companies? to to move them forward. Uh, and I also want to tag on to that because uh, I, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Are you doing shareholder advocacy within your portfolio? We do some, uh, not as much as uh, a lot of managers because we do our very best to avoid the companies that are causing system-level risk. And so we don't own the bad actors and, and therefore there's a I perceive that there's less need for us to do advocacy in our strategies. Uh, however, we do very aggressively vote our proxies and we do occasionally write into IR or to management to uh, request a discussion about something that is uh, that is bothering us or to just try to get more information about what they're doing. There are a couple of things in particular that will, even among our companies that that are solutions providers, uh, that will that are still uh, bothersome to us. Where we do like to uh, ask them to to explain themselves or to or to consider uh, modifying their behavior a little bit. And one of those is share buybacks. We are not the biggest fans of that. We're uh, a little bit dismayed at how enormously popular it's become, especially around the world, but particularly in corporate America. Uh, we think it's one of the worst uses of capital that a company can can do. You know, we think the first thing they should do is keep reinvesting in one more innovation, more R and D, uh, two in expanding their production capacity so they can grow their top line and, and deliver more solutions. Uh, three, if you've run out of projects to do all of that with, you you should probably pay us a dividend, and then that's really it. <laughs> And then the buyback should happen very much last, if ever. So that's someplace where we'll do a little bit of advocacy. Yes. Um, but I'll come back and, and answer your, the first part of your question. And, uh, and I would like to start that by saying, first of all, while you're right, I, I am an optimist overall. Uh, on the other hand, I don't disagree with Hunter. I think that for all the world's efforts, the reality is we're headed for a climate catastrophe. And so far, no one has done enough to avert it. And that includes investors. And we can say, well, there's been Paris, there's been treaties, there's been international law, but I think the results so far show that those have all been terribly inadequate. And so I think investing is a critical piece of the solution because if there's one power in this world that does have global agency, it isn't a treaty or some international law that countries just feel free to ignore, but it's markets, it's money and markets. And that's a lever that we can pull. And so we should. We should tr strive to have true impact. And this is, this is where, uh, to come to the, to the answer to your question, we think what is key to look at is not so much a given potential investment, a given companies or stocks ESG score, but rather put that further down in your process and 
focus first on the company's sources of revenues. I think it's important to understand how a firm gets paid in order to understand whether or not you're having impact with your investment. So if a company, just generally speaking, if a company is doing more to raise the risk profile of the global economy than it is doing to lower it or to, to mitigate our risks, then it's going to make a terrible long-term investment. Because by definition, anything that is going to cause system-level risk can't endure indefinitely and therefore makes you know, a terrible long-term investment. And the first and most obvious you know, poster case for that is, is fossil fuels. Uh, you know, Mark Carney over at the, uh, the Bank of England, uh, who's the governor there, not exactly a, a tree hugger, has said that he's expecting there to be a dramatic downward repricing of the fossil exposed economy sometime in the next decade. I think that that has to be right because what Hunter says is true. Because outside of that, we're headed for some sort of a complete collapse. And so you don't want to be caught with the makers of internal combustion engines. You don't want to be caught with fossil-powered utilities, or the last thing you want to be caught with is extractors of, of fossil fuels in that time. And that's just the, so that's sort of the most obvious one. Think of like a super major, uh, like an Exxon. Well, they get paid to raise the risk of the global economy. Just look at their revenues. Right. Uh, as long as that's the case, you don't want to own it. Yeah. I want to emphasize something you said, because I think it's really, really important. Um, uh, you, you basically said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, money and markets equals true impact. So what we're doing in terms of impact investing and sustainability investing is very important. Our money and our markets equals true impact. And I, uh, I want to move on to my last area of questions because I don't want to run out of time to talk about this. But, you know, you, you talk a lot in here about um, wealth inequality and equality. And, and I want to... Um, ask you what you mean by the surplus of wealth creation. Because uh, in my mind, I think about, is it better to have more wealth equality? Or do you want to have a surplus of wealth on, you know, wealth creation? Because that's how I'm reading what you say. Do you want a surplus of wealth creation? Or is it better to have wealth equality? I think that they go together. I think as as the production function of the global economy gets stronger and stronger, uh, becomes more and more efficient, that we can arrive at a place where there's enough abundance that there can actually be surpluses without us uh, having some sort of collapse event. And that with that kind of surplus, it's much easier uh, to achieve some sort of universal basic equity and raise the level of equality globally uh, to the point where we've diffused the risks generally associated with inequality. So I don't think it's either or there. I think it's both and. I think that the more innovative we can be and the more we can leverage technology and just innovation in general, the more almost anything that you care to buy will come closer and closer to being a zero marginal cost product and or service and or something uh, that you want to do as an experience. And therefore, the more available to everyone they will become and the less inequality we'll have. So it is universal basic equity as, as, a, as a thesis resolution to the risks of inequality. But that comes from a place of improving productivity and therefore surplus. That is very interesting, Garvin. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give that a lot more thought. Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out in my head how we make that work. Uh, I, I agree with you. I'd love to see that happen. Um, I think it's a very difficult 
scenario to see in the end. It's just when I think about the end games, right? There's the one Hunter foresees, and then there's the way out. And the way out just has to depend on being so innovation-facing that we almost have to believe in that future because the alternative is just really unimaginably bleak. I agree. Now, fortunately, that is the trajectory the economy is on, right? Productivity is, is going up. Innovation is increasing. And in fact, the rate of change in innovation is happening faster than ever. And platforms like AI and machine learning and automation and robotics and the blockchain and even further out things such as quantum computing are so powerful that they actually, you know, for the maybe the first time in human history, do give us the tools to solve these problems. But that is not the same as saying it'll be easy. Uh, but as they do evolve, I definitely want mine and my, my clients' money to be in front of those solutions and not in front of the causes of the problems. Because if there is a way out, it's only via those solutions. And therefore, if we do manage to, to prevent the collapse event, only those fixes will have value in that world. And so why would you want to invest in anything else? I, I absolutely agree. We don't want to be behind it. We want to be in front of it. And, <laughs> and all of these strategies... You know what I tell people? Yeah. You know, I will say, I, I know it's the, the advice you get all day, every day, if you watch the finance news oh. channel, is just to invest in the S&P 500 fund and forget it. Because it's passive, which I put in quotes, right? <laughs> but you, considering that there are 60 fossil fuels companies in there, you might think you're making a passive investment if you own S&P 500, but you don't. You're making an active bet on system-level collapse. And it's, and it's crazy on, on, on its face. I, I think it's amazing the cognitive dissonance that occurs in the world between how we invest and how we picture the climate crisis. We think of them as, as entirely different, but they're not because – you do get the economy that you invest in. And as long as we're all invested in the business as usual economy, that's what we're, we're going to continue to get. I like that. You get the economy you invest in. I, that's, that is actually a great way for us to sort of end this conversation because we could actually talk about this all day. <laughs> but um, we don't have all day. Definitely, for right. sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough to, uh, for, for coming on um, my podcast and talking about this. It's, it's great conversation to have. It's very interesting stuff. You know, I, I love working with Green Alpha Advisors. Um, you guys are fabulous. You're, you're up there in the Boulder area, Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I so appreciate it. Um, you know, um, how long have you guys been in business? 11 years. 11 years. Uh, tell in us. December will yeah. be our longest track record. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, and tell us your website. So people can look at your white papers? Sure. GreenAlphaAdvisors.com. And that's all one word. And advisors is spelled with an O, not an E. (laughs) Important distinction. And we didn't know that if you look it up, it hit right. We just thought it was O when we founded the firm. And people kept trying to spell it with E. And so I actually went to the authoritative source, the Oxford English Dictionary, to put it to rest. And guess what, Kim? It turns out they're both right. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, maybe we should uh, try to buy both URLs. You yeah. probably should. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And um, I I hope people will enjoy this conversation. Uh, they can go and read the white paper that we've been discussing. And you have several others on there. Um, it, it's, it's a very interesting topic, um, talking about the next economy, where the innovation is going, what they should be getting ahead of, and... Um, 
what they should be thinking about in terms of of their investments and the future of where we're going. So thanks very much for being here. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Kim, thank you so much for bringing Garvin on. I learned a ton and <laughs> my brain is full. I've, I've got to go back and start thinking about some of these things uh, because there's just, there's a lot to take away. And so I appreciate you bringing him on. Yeah, it was, it was a fascinating conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you all for listening to the Deep Impact Investing Podcast. Click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Kim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Horizon Sustainable Financial Services, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Deep Impact Investing Podcast, the sustainable, responsible impact investing podcast that shows you how to get your voice heard. It's time to start investing like you give a damn. To ask a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast, email us at info at horizonssfs.com or join the conversation on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash horizons sustainable financial services or give us a call at 505-982-9661. Don't forget to click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The companies we may speak about during our podcast are not recommendations for investment only. You and your financial advisor can determine what the right investments are for you and your situation. Horizon Sustainable Financial Services is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of New Mexico and other jurisdictions were registered or exempted. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and or guest and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Horizon Sustainable Financial Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.